Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, I hope you've had a great start to the week after the disappointment of the football last night. But, you know, the reality is that while the football ferns scored one fantastic goal against Norway, their inability to add any more in the next two games shows that they are not really worthy of a place among the top 16 teams in the world. Yes, they were sharper than Switzerland last night, but all that possession and all those probes towards the Swiss goal yet there was not really one serious chance of the ball going in, apart from that floating volley on the left side from Jackie Hand, which hit the post. You know, if New Zealand wants to be a serious player in international football, male or female, uh, frankly, we have to find more out-and-out strikers and score more goals. The men have Chris Wood when he's fit. The women had one moment of brilliance in their first match, And frankly, not much after that. But the football ferns have played their part in what is shaping as a very successful tournament. Even though they've been eliminated, I think the huge interest they created will continue through the rest of the schedule of matches in New Zealand, including the semi-final in Auckland two weeks from tomorrow. But the big question is, will football now experience a surge in popularity amongst young people because of this tournament, amongst young women? Maybe, but then if the Silver Ferns keep on their winning way at the World Netball Cup in South Africa this week, then netball's reign as the most popular women's sports will surely continue. The voters of East Coast now have an intriguing choice as their local MP come the 14th of October. This is the seat that Kerry Allen won with a whopping majority in 2020. She had over 51% of the vote and turned a national majority of nearly 4,800 in 2017 through the former MP Anne Tolley into a Labour majority of 6,300. That's a massive swing. Intriguingly for a seat which has the highest percentage of Māori voters in a general electorate, it's been a pretty solid National Party seat this century, and Tolly held it from 2005 until she retired in 2020. But this time, Labour are putting up Tamati Coffey. He previously said he was leaving politics after losing his Wairiki seat last time to the Maori Party leader Rawiri Waititi. That he lost his seat in the biggest Labour landslide in 25 years back in 2020 uh, maybe says something of what Labour voters think of Tamati Coffey. So Tamati has been on the list for the past three years, but he's due to get a low list ranking uh, today, so he wouldn't have been coming back after this year's election. But now he's going to try and keep Kerry Allen's majority going against a real Gisborne blue blood, Dana Kirkpatrick. She's from that famous Gisborne farming and sporting family and has been the jumps director at Equestrian Sports New Zealand, so it could hardly be a bigger contrast here. Q 
Kerry Allen lost against Anne Tolley in 2017 before winning on that huge Labour tide in 2020 with a swing of over 11,000 votes. But this is the biggest electorate geographically in the North Island, stretching from the outskirts of Tepuki all the way around to Gisborne with economically battling towns like Murapara and Kawara part of it as well. The electorate swung big time in 2020, but I reckon that was mainly due to the nationwide Labour love fest in the first year of COVID. I wouldn't be surprised if it swung back to national just as hard this time as Tamati Coffey tries to rescue the reputation of the Labour Party after what their previous MP has done. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, the National Party reckon they're on to a winner by committing to build a whole raft of new roads, especially the plan to have a four-lane highway from Whangarei all the way down and out to Tauranga. Quite a lot of that is already built, of course. What it needs is Whangarei down to Walkworth and then at the southern end from Cambridge around to Tauranga. Now, as someone who used to drive between Auckland and Tauranga more often than I care to remember, usually on that dreadful Highway 2 down through Pairoa and the Karangahaki Gorge, The idea of a four-lane bypassing Hamilton and Cambridge and then turning left at Pyareri to go over the Kaimais is a fantastic idea, which should have happened 20 years ago. But that project, as announced by National, just cannot be done for $6 billion. David Park is absolutely correct. The price tag is laughable. I've read estimates of how much a road costs to build of between 70 million a kilometre for the Bayview to Bayfair Highway in Tauranga, which has taken forever to build, and over $300 million a kilometre for the east-west link in Auckland, and that's never happened. In other words, roads cost a fortune to build, and the National Party policy is surely way, way short on its estimates. That shouldn't necessarily matter, though, because they could join up with Act's policy of making them private projects that can be told have them as user-pays projects with the private sector carrying the risk and the cost of construction. But the Nats are right about one thing. We need more high-quality roads. Look at the love fest towards that new Puhoi-Walkworth motorway. Look at uh, what has happened out east of Tauranga on the way to uh, Tepuki, or bypassing Tepuki on the way to Rotorua. They are great roads, enjoyable to drive, efficient to get you places quickly. That's how this country needs to get around. The National Party have got part of their announcement right. But David Parker is correct. The pricing estimate is just laughable. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, a special announcement for you this week about something that's officially launching in the next few days. Uh, You know, of course, that here at RCR, we're on a mission to revive honest media, to report on critical, censored stories and to hold those in positions of power 
to account. As my colleague Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. But to make this happen, RCR needs to grow and grow fast. And for that, we need your support. The great news is now there is an easy way to show your support by becoming an integral part of RCR while at the same time receiving some great benefits. You can join our RCR Foundation Members Club. Aside from the sense of pride that comes from contributing to something that's big, that matters, and that's making a difference, RCR Foundation members enjoy a host of exclusive benefits. And one of these is a special event, a a backstage pass of sorts happening online uh, this Sunday evening, the 6th of August. I'll be there along with my RCR co-hosts, Rodney Hyde, Paul Brennan, Cam Slater and Marie Buskey. Learn more about the membership at www.realitycheck.radio so you can find out all you need to know about the Foundation Members Club at realitycheck.radio. Check it out today. Now, don't tell the climate alarmists, don't tell the Secretary General of the United Nations, don't tell Greta Thunberg, but the world is using more oil than ever. And we used more coal than ever during 2022 as well. According to a report from Bloomberg, world oil consumption reached 102.5 million barrels a day this past month of July, more than the record of 102.3 million barrels a day that we had in pre-COVID times back in August of 2019. And the comparison for the first few months of this year tells a similar story. The world was consuming 100.8 million barrels a day from January to April, In 2019, in the same period, the number was 99.9 million barrels a day. Oil demand surges in the Northern Hemisphere summer, of course, because people go away for holidays, either driving their petrol-powered cars or flying in a plane powered by oil. What's even more astounding is that demand for oil, according to this report, is likely to increase up to 4% in the next five years before settling on this very high plateau. There is, according to Bloomberg, no chance that oil consumption will drop off a cliff anytime soon. The report says there is no chance that oil consumption by 2030 will reduce enough for the world to meet net zero emission targets. And here's the kicker. Many Western governments, although of course not New Zealand for now, are telling oil companies to invest in more production while at the same time preaching renewables and green energy in public. But then politicians specialise in hypocrisy. Uh, As for coal, well, consumption was up 3.3% last year to 8.3 billion tonnes. What's more, it will stay near that level this year as strong growth in Asia for power generation and industry outpaces declines in the US, US rather, and Europe. Mr Guterres of the UN can go on all he likes about global boiling, but frankly, unless China and India and the US, for that matter, stop using or start reducing consumption of oil and coal, then the greenhouse gas emissions, which may or may not have an impact on the world's climate, will not be reducing significantly anytime soon. Quite why New Zealand is even bothering to become the virtue-signalling leader of the world on matters of emissions when oil and coal consumption internationally is at record highs is frankly just beyond my comprehension. 
Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. I have met Damien Grant a few times. He is one seriously smart guy who the rabidly left-wing and ultra-woke stuff group seem to indulge as their token libertarian right-winger once a week, only because he writes with such panache they don't know that he's taking the piss out of them. His Sunday column is a must-read for me, and he excelled himself yesterday. Let me quote, Why would anyone with get-up-and-go choose to stay in what is increasingly becoming an inward-looking, narrow-minded and petty economic backwater where success is treated as a sign of dishonesty and merit treated with suspicion? The great challenge of our age is not to change the government and briefly move our economic and social policy settings to a more rational basis. The real ambition must be to re-engineer the way this country thinks about how we can generate wealth and away from the current obsession with redistributing it. Unquote. Gee, isn't that the truth? Is there a plan in this election from anybody to attract significant amounts of foreign investment to build high-value businesses employing highly educated people? I listened to Oliver Hartwich here on RCR after his recent New Zealand initiative trip to Ireland. Uh, he was espousing how much value that country puts on education and how Intel was prepared to invest in a plant now worth $53 billion in Ireland, but it could only do that because it had a highly educated workforce looking for well-paid jobs in their own country. Country. Isn't Damien Grant's line about finding ways to generate wealth rather than looking to redistribute it the real key? Because that dovetails with what Sir Roger Douglas was writing last week. Our most significant Minister of Finance since the Second World War is still at the age of 85, still thinking outside the square about economic growth. His solution as it was in the 1980s, is for us to keep more of the money that we earn, keep more of our money. We spend it on health and education the way we think is best. As he writes, quote, the only way yet discovered for improving outcomes while keeping costs down is to restore control to the individual and allow providers to respond to their needs, unquote. Now, Roger Douglas has been writing this sort of stuff for 45 years. Before he became Minister of Finance, he wrote a book called There's Got to Be a Better Way. It was a sort of alternative budget from a then opposition Labour Party Member of Parliament, which we all thought was nuts. How could you possibly let the individual control his or her life and finances and allow others to provide services like the telephone? Didn't the government do all that? Uh, those of us post-war baby boomers didn't know any other way. But Roger Douglas showed us from 1984 onwards that there was another way. And you know what? Despite all the whinging from the left, the essential philosophy of that has not been changed since 1984 until this current lot came to power and have tried to move the dial with higher debt and increased taxes. And look where it has got us. The country needs big picture thinkers like Damien Grant and Roger Douglas and Oliver Hartwich. Instead, we get racist redistributionists like David Parker and Grant Robertson and Marama Davidson. And here we are.
Will a change of government after October the 14th make much difference? Not unless there is a major change of thinking too. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You know, one of the worst things about the COVID lockdowns was the ability that people discovered to work from home. In these days of laptops and broadband connectivity, the idea that you didn't really need to go to the office anymore gained extraordinary popularity and became the go-to way of working even after the lockdowns had finished and life had supposedly returned to normal. But it's had a significant impact on some industries and on some cities. Downtown Wellington, for instance, is now... Well, it's now pretty dead because public servants decided that they didn't need to come to the office every day. So the ones thriving cafes and shops on Lambton Quay are now battling to make a living. Many have given up the ghost. Uh, David Jones is the most obvious example, although there might be some other issues at play there. The famous Astoria Cafe closed in Midland Park for 18 months before reopening last year. But here's a comment from the chief executive of one of Australia's biggest companies, Wes Farmers. It owns Bunnings, Kmart, Target and Flybys, among a myriad of other businesses. It employs 120,000 staff. Rob Scott, the chief executive, said in the Australian Financial Review last week that, quote, working from home is a white-collar indulgence. It's really important to develop new team members, to develop the skills that our younger and newer members need. You learn a lot more when you're working alongside other more experienced people. At the end of the day, we are judged on output and on being productive. On many occasions, that means being present in the office. By contrast, an insistence on being allowed to work from home two or three days a week is a very definition of being inflexible about work. Unquote. How can you argue with that? Rob Scott also notes that of Wes Farmer's 120,000 staff across all their businesses, 90% of them work in retail and therefore cannot work from home. He runs a huge company, one of the biggest in Australia. He just wants to be fair and respect all his staff. And that's the kind of boss we all hanker after. Uh, this has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on RCR. Correspondence is most welcome through inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057. And you can contact us on Facebook. Search realitycheck.radio. I am back on Wednesday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.